Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trond Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurize.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. John, how are you? Welcome to the show. Tron, good to see you. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm always up for discussion on geopolitics, and it seems to me that you've been up for it a while too. You shared with me that uh, even from a little kid, you were watching the news. Absolutely. I think geopolitics is one of those things that we may forget about for a while, but it's never going to go away. Yeah, well, let's see that. Let's see about that. Not not everybody thinks so, right? Um, But I want to cover your background quickly first. So you you did go to St. John's University, Minnesota, I guess. Um, Absolutely. So that's where you were hailing from. Um, and you've spent a, a, a bunch of time, you know, in between think tanks on the Department of Defense. Uh, now you are a fellow at uh, CSIS, at the International Security Program, so security questions, and uh, the, with a big focus on on Asia Pacific, originally. But uh, as we talked about earlier, geopolitics doesn't follow the neat plans of of the regions we choose to focus on always. So so that's another challenge. And you're responsible for foresight and and future trends. And we'll talk about a little bit the methods around that for studying trends, for studying uh, the future and particularly scenarios and and, and a couple of other methods. So with that, I was just curious, you know, I also read a lot of news and here we are talking about geopolitics, but what was the real path here for you? couple of degrees, and then suddenly you're in Washington doing defense um, analysis and security. So I think the the easiest way to tell it is I've always been interested in the news and current events and what's happening. And throughout college, I was a political science major, studied Spanish, ended up uh, finding a job teaching English in China for two years, back to Minnesota, wanted to really do international policy. And so then I ended up in Washington, which is really the only place in the United States that I could find a job doing international policy. And as I've been here for 16, 17 years now, it's increasingly clear to me that uh, governments are really geared around, or at least the U.S. government right now is geared around responding to crises. And that's important. Everybody has to do that, you know, business, government, other places. But to try and mitigate the number of crises we have, we have to see where the world is going and try and get ready for what that looks like so that if something happens, we're ready for it. And that's really what drove me into this uh, uh, foresight and scenario planning world. So let's talk a little bit about how your organization has has been moving in that world. I understand that, uh, I'm sure the organization has always been doing some amount of planning, but since 1992, there's this particular project called the uh, Seven Revolutions Project. 
that has been covering, well, seven trends, I guess. And um, I'm curious about that because whenever you know you pick a number, you know, three, five, seven, you have to make a lot of choices, right? And those choices, I guess, sort of stay with you. So I'm curious, I don't know exactly, you know, how far back in this history you go, but what is the origin of this project? Why were these particular seven revolutions uh, picked? And uh, how is information and analysis done uh, to keep maintaining that document? And, and beyond the document, I understand, you know, it's obviously an activity where you are confronting stakeholders with, with these findings. So just unbundle a little bit this particular project for us. Sure, happy to. So Seven Revolutions was really born out of CSIS's 30th birthday. Now, CSIS, we're a think tank. We're in the business of trying to uh, consider and understand where we are as a world and solve problems before they become crises, like, like we were just talking about. And so for our 30th anniversary in 1992, uh, the, the leadership at that time decided, rather than spend a lot of time looking backwards at the things they had accomplished, they said, let's take a pause and look forward 20 or 30 years and imagine what the world might look like based on where it's going today. And from that effort uh, grew this Seven Revolutions project. And the project takes what we call seven key drivers of change. And those are population, uh, resources, technology, information, economics, security, and government uh, or governance, and unpacks each of those a little bit and paints a picture of, in each of those mega trends, where does it look like the world is headed? And we use that in a presentation format to try and drive conversation in uh, educational groups, corporate boards, um, government stakeholders, and and get people out of the day-to-day, their, their normal you know six-month planning horizon, and think long-term about their institutions and their communities. Where, where do we think we might need to adjust how we think about this? And, and it's a great tool for doing that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because you, you also have another document that we'll talk about, and that relates more to the traditional way, if there's a way to say it, traditional in, in, in sort of foresight studies. But, you know, scenarios is obviously a, a, a very big uh, tool used. And, you know, the scenarios is different from the driving forces. And I, the, the way, uh, what I like about, I guess, the the formulation of just the forces is that you're, you're focused on what, what the input is. So, and you're asking people to kind of debate, you know, what's happening in these fields. Scenarios, however, I guess for many is like the, the next and kind of penultimate step because now you're taking the forces and you're putting them into sort of real world action and you're saying, well, this now is what we assume could happen, some sort of plausible futures. Tell me, just as a context, before we go into these different revolutions, there is this other document that you were at least uh, peripherally part of uh, that uh, your uh, organization also uh, works on. And it was called What Will Great Power Competition Look Like? So it was a little bit more specific, um, but it also was a long-term geopolitical landscape document. Tell, tell me a little bit about the relationship between you know these focusing on forces and focusing on scenarios. Sure, I think it's a it's a great question and an important distinction. So the Seven Revolutions Project really tries to, as you say, look at what is driving change in the world, and through scenario planning, we try and take some combination of those forces and distill them into. Um, pictures or, or narratives of what what might happen and we try and bundle those in a, a you know a, a human scale number of, of possible places that are roughly uh, not entirely mutually exclusive but capture distinct visions of the future so the the great power competition piece was uh, developed right at the beginning of the pandemic really in, in early to mid 2020 and that that was seen as a, and it is obviously a huge pivot point in where the world is going. And so we took the the current events of the day and the potential directions that could go. Who develops a vaccine first? Is it effective? How how is it wielded as a tool? Is it is it given away freely? Is it open access, or is it a is it a uh, you get access to our great vaccine if you accept certain terms? And we started to play out what do different 
formulations of that look like? And for us, one of the big pivot elements on that was uh, the then Trump administration's national security strategy focused on great power competition and really focused on uh, what the Defense Department at the time succinctly put it as China, China, China. And so what does a U.S.-China competition look like? And the, the four scenarios we came up with were roughly the U.S. is up or China is up, the U.S. is down or China is down, and kind of the mixing and matching of those, of those uh, aspects to say, how does the world look? And how do other countries, how do other actors play into that? And, and then really, where does that leave us? Is that a world that's positive for us? Is that negative? Are there things we should be doing to uh, accelerate or impede a particular direction? And are there gaps that uh, in our capability and our understanding uh, that apply to multiple ones of those that we should prioritize solving in the near term? You know, it's it's uh, so interesting to think about these uh, these scenarios. Obviously, in and of themselves, uh, they had kind of cool names: skull and bones, stars and stripes, yin and yang, and hammer and sickle. So there were, you know, scenarios can be very, you know, when they're done well and then they're short and snappy. You know, you can get a quick grasp of what's going on. Um, but again, I I think it's this oscillation between the, the the forces, which I think appeals more to you and I as like news junkies in the you know in the seventies. I'm assuming you know where you really kind of thinking and and trying to sort of understand these things. Scenarios are a little bit more direct, uh, but many would say, well, without the scenarios, then all these forces, you know, it becomes very abstract. What has your experience been? So I, I understand you're spending most of your time on this document and presentation of the forces. So you have a lot to, to, to say there. But if you just take this scenario document for, for a second, what, what sort of feedback uh, have you been getting on these scenarios as such? I mean, were they useful to start a discussion? I mean, do you care whether one of them was right or wrong? You know, how, how, what is the lifetime of a scenario document? Because you, you are making certain options. So I, you know, and we're not that far into the future as you were painting, but you right. can kind of get an idea already of perhaps one of them wasn't, uh, you know, the path that happened. Absolutely. And I think, so I, the value of these scenarios is it, it takes us into, as you put it, plausible, credible um, pictures of what the future could look like. And it's it's a, an exercise in not just analysis, but imagination. And I, I think that part is very important, um, especially when it gets to, it's actually about collective imagination and working with a team of people, whether it's at an organization or a community group, a company in the government, and imagining that scenario and yourself in it and saying, what does this mean for me in my role, in my institution? And then across that team, thinking through what, what can we do about it? So it's really a stepstone to a planning process mm-hmm. and, a, and a thinking together process. Mm-hmm. And, and if I use the scenario planning or the scenario process versus the, the trends analysis, the trends analysis to me is the way to start that imagination process. And it gets people out of their day-to-day, and it gives them a great deal of information, some of which they've probably already heard. But when you hear it all at the same time, you start making these connections, which sparks imagination. And then you think, well, what if X? How prepared are we for Y? Go through that discussion, and then maybe you can distill it to some scenarios, which really then help you think through what do we need to be doing or preparing to do. Um, and I think that that's really the feedback that I've gotten in, mm. in both of these types of tools is one helps get to the next in a pretty effective way. And it's really the scenarios that are important. And you noted that the, the catchy titles. And often that's just as important as the, the picture they paint because it, it really is trying to uh, get people to engage and be serious but not somber about what they're doing. Well, that's a great point, right? Because many of these uh, scenarios, they're pretty drastic because you you are painting extreme pictures. You're also, you're looking to stimulate discussion. So you're not just saying, well, there might be one scenario that's like business as usual, but you know, how long can you discuss? Well, if nothing happens in 30 years, then, you know, what are we, what are we here talking about? Well, it's just day to day. 
So they are extreme and, and, and many of them are negative or, or they are positive, but they're positive in a pretty drastic way. And, you know, positive isn't positive for everybody. It's positive for, right. you know, whoever you're, you're trying to help out with the scenario. Um, I, I want to get to sort of how the how the sausage is made. I, I noticed for for the scenario uh, part, uh, you first of all you you have these four minute videos, and they are indeed very succinct and it's very quick. You know, you can scan through and get a sense of them very quickly. But it, it does say that you know uh, they are shaped by you know structured interviews with various people. It doesn't really go into the details, but with the context of knowing that you've been doing forces analysis since 1992 i'm imagining for example if uh, some other uh, little group of people were to do scenarios you know you'd have to start with the forces now you had the advantage of having done forces analysis for 30 years can you just tell us a little bit about and, that, and that's great context for you know how are these four scenarios produced they were actually produced i'm assuming over 30 years what goes into it for for csis when when you analyze geopolitics over a long time and you try to distill it into forces and and obviously you have tracked the same forces for a while what sort of resources do you do you spend on that and and how do you update it you know mm-hmm. you've already picked the forces but what is it that does change so we do pick the forces but over time they have morphed um, at times we've we've looked at the the way the world is headed and said you know Maybe information and technology are the same basket. They're not distinct baskets, but maybe education is pulled out as its own area. And then as time goes by, maybe maybe that shifts. And so right now, education isn't its own uh, major trend, but it, it certainly could come back that, that direction. In terms of what it takes to keep this up, uh, we can do it really lean. Uh, with you know me and, and one researcher really plugging away all the time. But it's we find that it's most effective when we have a small team who's focused on it. So maybe two, two and a half full-time people, but we leverage the expertise across the rest of our, our organization. CSIS has world-class analysts on a whole range of topics, regional, ranging from Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America, functional issues like energy and health, food, uh, development, economics. And so we start pulling and polling the experts of what is happening in your space. What are the issues that are just barely on the horizon? Mm. And so the the presentation, the the research that goes into it can help pull some of that forward and, and start raising awareness of emerging issues. Like uh, about 15 years ago, uh, AI was... Uh, already a, a hot commodity in many parts of the U.S. Uh, academic environment, but it hadn't really percolated into uh, policy circles yet. And so we started trying to talk about where where is it and where can it go. And so that's the kind of kind of work we try and do. Some of it pans out AI. Uh, some of it doesn't um, because these uh, thinking about where the world could head has a lot of dead ends. Yeah, I'm curious. So the the public version of this uh, seven revolution presentation, right, is is a four page document. So it's pretty uh, succinct as well. There's no videos in this case, but it's uh, it's basically these descriptions of sort of growth patterns, but also of a couple of sources for each of them, which I found interesting. Um, can we can we go into uh, some of those more specifically? Because I was I was curious. So for for the first revolution in this current uh, you know picture, which is about population. You quote the UN Population Survey. Mm-hmm. Isn't that an area that's pretty easy to cover? In the sense that, I guess, thirty years from now, there aren't that many sources for for population projections. I'm just curious. You know, wh- what kind of challenges does that area pose for you? Are you going into the details of the regional uh, specificities here, or are you sort of taking into account kind of major cataclysms that could change this, or? Or you know how do you, how do you work with a force like population? What what do you care about there? So population is fascinating because it is one of the few areas where we have such a long uh, long term projections. Right, the UN goes out to twenty one hundred right now, or even a little bit past that, in terms of both global populations and national level populations. What do we think it'll look like? And it's probably not exactly right, but it gives a pretty good directional indicator. And uh, what we do in population is 
try and set the stage, get people thinking about the scope of time involved. And so you're right, there, there's not a lot of sources, they're pretty routinized, but the, the degree to which we really dive in on a specific region or, or set of countries depends on the audience. And so we can dive in and, and pull out, uh, for example, how is population changing in the United States, China, India, and uh, let's say six of the largest countries in Africa over the next 50 years? And we, we explore what does that look like and what are the potential implications? Um, we don't really have time in such an expansive presentation to answer all the questions, but we can lay out what those look like and see where people want to take the conversation at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, clearly it's a, even though the data isn't so easy to come by, uh, it's clearly a disruptive factor in and of itself. For example, thinking about the continent of Africa and previously previous to that and and still develop, you know developing you know asia's uh, population growth well well let's talk about the specifics of it later but let's just hit on a couple of these revolutions so mm -hmm. uh, on resources I, I noticed you you know you were using the uh, iea the outlook uh, document and there's obviously uh, a, a good bit of work in the U us government department of energy what are some of the core uh, sources for for sort of resource use because traditionally obviously there are you know there's a fixed amount of energies that have been exploited and you can kind of look at the trends there but increasingly with renewables and, and innovation you know this game could get a little bit more complicated and and also potentially new sources you know fusion on the arena and and other things out there what what, what kind of work do you do on resources so for resources we try and uh we, we, what I do is I break it into a couple of large buckets. So we've got energy, we've got food, water, and thinking through what is demand like now and how might that change? So for food and water, we have a, I mean, energy is a constrained resource right now. Water is even more constrained. So how are countries, governments, subregions thinking about and planning for increased demand because of increased population, for example? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. And the changes in uh, dietary preferences, as the world has gotten wealthier over the past 40 years, people have eaten, uh, shifted toward uh, animal protein, which is very water and, and food intensive to create. Mm -hmm. And so we have this give and take across uh, those two areas before we even get to uh, to energy, which has its own interconnections with both of those. And so we we try and unpack a little bit about Here's the current picture. Here's where it looks like it might be going. There are these complex interdependencies that are going to play out differently. So, for example, our, and each of those interdependencies can connect to other uh, of our big trends or revolutions. Mm -hmm. So we're watching this play out in the headlines this morning where the, the Biden administration may be confronted with a question about what to do about potential Chinese solar panel producers where the U.S. government has concerns about price dumping, economic competitiveness issues, intellectual property controls. And yet, if we're going to meet our green energy targets, we're going to need those, those producers and a lot more. So how, how do we play off all of these, these interconnections? Mm -hmm. And I think both population and resources are a great springboard into exploring those because they're so universal. If we jump to the the third one, technology, that's obviously a lot more complex because, especially when the picture is thirty years into the future. I mean, if you think thirty years back, most of the technologies, apart from these big infrastructure technologies we now depend on, most other technologies weren't even invented, right? H how do you how do you attack that? I mean, do you have? I mean, there's Moore's law, and people saying, you know, is it alive? Is it dead? W which areas does it work? Isn't you know, perhaps it's not even a law at all. It's just a statistical observation. So that leaves you with a very large canvas. It's a huge canvas, and and one of the ways to cope with that that I use is largely I shrink the time horizon because it is so difficult. As you pointed out, 30 years ago, we couldn't have predicted the technologies we have today. And so rather than try and anticipate uh, where 
the offshoots of offshoots of offshoots of offshoots will be given the, the cycle time on, on technology development is to, to look at where are we right now and, and where are some of the biggest impact areas likely to be. And so mm-hmm. one of them that I think is pretty important is uh, genetic technology and, and its intersection with pharmaceuticals and biotech and the way that those are playing out to, to, to really alter the way that how people's uh, lives can not just be extended, but their quality of life can be improved throughout the time as well. And I think if that becomes a pervasive trend, not just a, a wealthy country trend, it'll have enormous impacts in how the world, how people around the world uh, live their lives. Are there technologies that you then include or exclude based on that criteria? Because I could right now just list off, I guess, you know, at least five different technology areas that are sort of everybody looks at. Mm-hmm. But I could also kind of mention five more that some people look at, but others are sort of saying, well, that's either too complex or we have no idea where that's going. And it's so embryonic right now. And, you know, these academics are saying it's going to happen. But what if it doesn't even happen in 30 years? Because, you know, technology is one of these things, well, it could happen fast, but more likely than not, you know, it takes a long time to roll out a technology. So you may, you, we may not know about it now, um, but most likely, I guess, if we don't know about it, it won't be rolled out in 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, but on the other hand, there are a few that will very quickly hit you and will change things. So right. how do you deal with that? Do you, you just pick the, the top? You were mentioning AI before and obviously mm-hmm. biology. So those two areas you cannot ignore, but there's nanotech, there's quantum, there's all kinds of other stuff out there. How do you deal so, with that? Yeah, it, I would say if if population is an area that's pretty steady, the, the information base is, it changes pretty slowly, um, technology is probably the most dynamic. And right. so one of the, the metrics I try and balance, actually, is topics around which there is good data mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know, the number of advancements or the impact it can have, the, the reach of a technology or the, the reduction in price points, things like that, mm-hmm. versus the, the emerging, the potential, right? What happens with nanorobotics for, uh, going back to biotech, but for, for health purposes or what about self-healing materials and, and how does that impact uh, industrial capacity hmm. before we get to things you brought up earlier like fusion or you know space-based energy or hmm. uh, advanced energy storage hmm. I guess if we, if we just quickly jump through some of the others information seems to me that it's an area where there are a lot of sources uh, obviously they are also conservative in the sense that you know you only have statistics on the past you don't you know the rest is projection uh, economics at least at the surface level you would assume that that's similar although if there is a great economic upheaval or some new logic right some industrial revolution can change the economic basis i mean and security that's your bread and butter that's the sixth revolution um uh, so, I mean, at least you have a lot of experts on the area. Not that that's an easy area. We we can all be surprised at times. Uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about the security area. What, what kind of indicators do you have there? So, much of the security area right now is, is really thinking through uh, the changing way in which conflicts can happen on a material basis. What is What happens in conflict when you have, you know, a aircraft pilot sitting in a an office building in Nevada flying a, an aircraft in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, mm. That technology is not just in the United States anymore. China, Russia, about 15 or 20 other countries are producing these platforms and selling them around the world. So how does that start shifting both the the effects that countries can create, but also how do you manage a, a, a combat force where you don't deploy and go into a war area and then come home? You go to a war area from nine to five, and then you go home and cook dinner, right? Like there, there's a cognitive problem here for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's one aspect of it. But another piece is also how do we think about the forces that shape human security? What does it mean as we go through um, questions of governance legitimacy? How do we use uh, 
long-standing institutions to, to really manage how we we feel about our own security. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's a big uh, it, it's not a rhetorical debate, but I think there's just an active give and take right now about where does that go? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And if we think about uh, what we're seeing with the protests in China over the past week and the the response by the Chinese government, where they're using surveillance tools uh, to not necessarily go after the protesters in the moment, but to follow up and kind of encourage folks, and I'm using that term very loosely, to to not do that anymore. And and what impact will that have on society and, and its relationship with its government? Hmm. Well, you brought up government. There's obviously a very clear relationship between security and governance. Um, that would also seem to be an area where there's at least an enormous amount of activity, right? That there's political science as a whole field, um, and lots of other social sciences care right. about governance. Um, how do you handle that uh, particular area? Do you also then break it down into kind of like civil society work and democracy work and like neat buckets, and then kind of work from there? Or it's varied over time. When I when I started doing the the Seven Revolutions Project, maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, we had it very much as as you've described. We talked about the ways in which uh, foundations, for example, can be more effective than international uh, UN-based bodies for achieving targeted goals. But then there's a question of to whom are they responsible? Where where are their stakeholders, and how is that legitimacy derived? Lately, I've been thinking more in terms of what what trends are driving shifts in governments and governance. And, and one of the big ones that, that we're seeing lately is uh, populism. How are uh, politicians and social groups leveraging the, you know, populism on, on one part of the spectrum to kind of promoting or uh, galvanizing extremism on another end to, to achieve political ends in ways that may actually be pulling uh, societies and countries into more balkanized camps. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, governance, right? Uh, if you think about bigger macro trends, like, uh, you know, the shift towards uh, perhaps starting to deal with our climate challenges and other things, governance is, is one of those things where um, when it changes from below, then obviously that's a big issue, right? Revolutions and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if you're talking about top-down changes, these are they're they're, they're massive things. They're hard to to get in motion. Uh, you, you know, starting from 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 any level, mm-hmm. thirty years is is a long time in that perspective. Uh, I mean, many international institutions aren't more than thirty to fifty years old. Uh, so they at some point appeared, right uh, after you know a crisis. Typically, thirty years. Do you think there will be a very different governance structure? Are you assuming that, or are you more making kind of smaller assumptions in in that sort of time frame? Uh, I'm pretty unsure, actually, and mm. and I think the the piece that I keep focused on there is. The, inst- the international institutions we have, whether you think about it, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, most of these are post-World War II institutions, the, the really big ones. And they set up a pretty rigid governance structure at that time. And mm-hmm. the, the shifts in population and economic power and political influence in the past 70 plus years, the, the central... Uh, powers in those institutions are not necessarily central powers in the world anymore. And the the, the rising powers, the the Indias, the Chinas, even you know, Japan, South Korea, South Africa, Brazil, are looking for more agency and more voice in these institutions. But in an institutional sense, power is zero sum. So where where do those institutions go from here? I think stasis leads quickly to irrelevance. Change is going to be exceptionally hard, mm-hmm. and replacement is going to be exceptionally hard. And so we've we've got this kind of like at least three fork or a f- uh, fork in the road with three or more directions. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one is more plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to talk about some specific ideas that you might mm-hmm. have on on kind of geopolitically what's happening kind of in the, in the, in the short term to to the very long term but right before that 
Um, budgets and, and funding is obviously always a concern for people. Uh, you know, you need to fund your work, but you, people are always asking, you know, who funded your work? Mm-hmm. In 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 the case of of the specific the foresight work you're doing, are you do you have a broad base of funders? This is funded through the central administration of CSIS, or how, how do you think about that? That because so, the future obviously is contested. <laughs> absolutely, CSIS is is very open and transparent about all of our publications, where each publication lists specifically who funds it, and yeah. the the organization as a whole has a pretty diversified set of funders from governments from the U.S. government to corporations to individuals um, and foundations. So there's a a mix, and it depends on which project and which uh, scholar is leading it, who funds it, but it's all publicly available there. The futures work we do is funded through a combination of um, speaking fees for giving the presentation and engaging uh, audiences in the, the kind of give and take or workshops afterwards, and general institutional support. That helps defray costs like uh, IT infrastructure and rent and those kinds of things. All right, let's let's uh, do some of the fun stuff. The future yeah. outlook in the next decade. What, what what are some of the things that you have been worried about and perhaps looking forward to, short term? How to start that? In in the security world, we just see problems, right? Yeah. So I go out and I talk to people in the business world, and they're like, "I've got an opportunity here and here and here," and I think, "Oh, I feel like Eeyore, where I'm like, oh, but have you thought about this problem and that problem and that problem?" And they, that conversation never goes very well. I'm surprised, but um, I think in terms of geopolitics, uh, let me start with the positives, which is mm-hmm. I think uh, the combination of COVID. And the, the global response, as, as spotty as it has been, has rekindled the idea that there are collective problems that we need to engage on immediately. Um, I think one of the challenges with the climate change as a, as a galvanizing force is everyone thinks about the consequences as being two or three generations away. And as, a, as you know, policymakers and politicians think about it, they're like, I, I got today problems. I can't worry about you know, 20 year from now problems. And whether that's right or not, I think that's that's kind of the, the the action gap we have. COVID made those collaborative, cooperative efforts immediate. And I think we're seeing a lot of action to, to bring countries closer together, partially because we couldn't go and talk to each other for two years. And so there's there's a I think a a clamoring to to re-engage, which is really positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the recognition and the, the collective action by NATO countries and EU countries after Russia's invasion of Ukraine is also really a for uh, NATO and EU cohesion a very positive thing insofar as it has woken up um, the countries collectively that they each each of the countries in NATO and the EU need to take security more seriously, need to take diplomacy more seriously, and need to take economic components of national security more seriously, hmm. whether that's energy from Russia or um, other potential concerning actions from China on economics. Happy to talk about that in a minute. But I think that the idea that there is a togetherness of like-minded countries, that had been dissipating for 15 to 20 years for a variety of you know post-Cold War, global war on terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, fatigue. Pe- people were kind of like, oh, we don't know about this security in this together space. I think there's there's a renewed interest there, and it also applies in Asia. Slightly mm-hmm. different formulation, but I think the United States, Japan, Australia, um, to a large extent, South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, India. There's a there's a renewed sense of we have common interests. We don't yet know if we have a common purpose in all cases, but there is enough to really drive that that cooperation. So why is that important? That, that togetherness, mm-hmm. because I think what we're seeing, especially now that Xi Jinping has been uh, reappointed for his third and likely fourth term as leader, um, we're seeing a China that is probably going to be more confident internationally, even as it is pricklier at home, where it suppresses protests, it doesn't allow dissent, it's not interested in an open debate, but it is interested in collaborating with other countries that are similarly oriented 
as Russia under Vladimir Putin, um, as Iran largely has shown itself to be. And, and you know, we're, we'll see where that goes. But I think in, in Xi Jinping's mind, there's a clear division between uh, Western countries, which are constitutional, democratic, rule of law countries, which is antithetical to what he wants China to be uh, and what he wants the world to be safe for China to be. And so I think creating uh, this network of countries that want rule of law, that want free markets, that want fair economic competition is going to be important to, to signaling effectively to China that many countries don't want to live in the world that Xi Jinping is promoting. Mm. Um, and, and figuring out how to do that through competition rather than conflict is going to be, I think, the, the geopolitical challenge of the next 15 years. You could, however, also choose to see the negative side of that, right? That uh, it was a shock to most people in Europe uh, that NATO was even needed. Uh, it was perhaps, uh, you know, the expansion of NATO was perhaps not so well thought out the way that it now, you know, is viewed on the Russian side. You could also say the way that China and Russia seem to be seeing things turns out not to be an isolated point of view. So, you know, uh, the end of history hasn't happened yet in a, in a, in a pretty massive way. Right. Uh, that, though, I guess brings me to the next 25 years or possibly 50 years, because some of these things will not play out overnight, it seems to me. Uh, if you go to kind of the, the great lengths of your own scenarios or, or, or the, even the seven revolutions, you, you take it out to sort of like 30 years, what do you see there? Is there a major shift from a decade uh, into sort of uh, three decades? Uh, is there anything massive there that is possible to even um, discern? And that's different from what you just said for kind of the next decade. Right. I think, I think that is exactly the space for effective scenario planning. Um, yeah. And so I could, I could, try and generate them off the top of my head, which probably isn't the most uh, prudent <laughs> yeah. use of our collective time. But what I right. could say is, I think the United States and many of its partners and allies, you're right, there is an alternative view and actually many alternative views to, to the way that the world kind of looks from, from Washington or London or Tokyo or uh, Brussels. But I think the the most effective way to to keep uh, what is I think clearly going to be a, a multi decade competition mm -hmm. uh, away from being conflictual is going to be uh, sticking together because that that creates a big enough counterweight that the consequences to making it into a conflict and creating a schism versus tension um, becomes too great for, for really either side to, to seek to precipitate a conflict. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the scenario exercises we have been working a little bit over the past maybe 12 months or so has been thinking through what do conflicts in East Asia look like? Right. And the top of everyone's mind is, oh, what if China invades Taiwan? Yep, that's a scary scenario, all sorts of problems, not just militarily, but really economic, political. Um, and the question becomes, how do countries outside of the immediate conflict, so how does Japan, how does the United States, how do Euro European states respond? Um, and that fundamentally shifts both what happens in the crisis and what happens and what is possible after. Hmm. Um, a more concerning risk, I think, is what if China were to take aggressive action against Taiwan that's not military? Mm -hmm. What if it quarantines Taiwanese exports? What if it uh, undertakes some sort of cyber operation against critical infrastructure? Um, that becomes a much harder problem to respond to without military assets, which would be seen as escalatory. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really this, this tension point between how do we compete mm -hmm. without going to conflict, which I think would fundamentally, somebody at a conference recently said, if we're in a post-Cold War 
post-post-Cold War order, the assumptions that undergirded the post-Cold War order need to be reassessed. But I think if we enter a conflict with China, all of our priors really need to be re-examined, and that becomes a much harder scenario to paint. Well, John, I was going to end with that, the question of the next 50 to 75, right? So it takes us to 2075, or, or perhaps, like you said, with population, we can even go to 2100. That is a time frame. I'm, I'm just going to paint a little picture for you for a scenario and how you react to it instead of just asking you kind of uh, point blank. That is a scenario where, first of all, under all reasonable expectations, China's economy would be at least have been for some time larger than any other economy. On the other hand, and, and I think you know the, the the plans that China may or may not have for Taiwan or, or other things would have played themselves out, whatever it turns out to be by that time. I'm going to make that assumption. Now, there are a couple of other things with China. For example, their demographics would also have played themselves out. They would be a really aging population by that time. Um, uh, there's obviously a whole host of other things that could happen. Do you see any major shifts then, you know, in these uh, seven uh, things that you're tracking, these seven re revolutions? Or, or does any sort of scenario, uh, two or three scenarios come to mind for you for 2075 or even 2100? Absolutely. So I think uh, accepting the, the premises you've laid out, I would add to a little bit, which is if we go to 2100, the current projections for China's population are it actually declines right. to about 750 million. So the Chinese population by 2100 is expected to be half of today's, and most of it will be old. And so it, it's going to have a fundamental uh, economic challenge of how does it maintain economic productivity with substantially fewer, less than half as many workers as it has today. They um, could be healthy, though, if we make health advances. Absolutely. They could be healthy. There's robotics. There's They could adopt a more immigration-friendly posture. Right? There's, there's lots of ways you could get there, but it's not obvious yet if they've if they're willing to embrace any one of those but 75 years is a long time, right? The right. United States of 1947 looked very different than 2022. Um, but other key aspects of it, Africa as a continent could be as many as 4 billion people by 2100 compared to 1 billion today. Um, and, and thinking through what that means for population density, uh, urban centers, uh, right, infrastructure, education, all, all of those things. It suggests to me that the United States, well, at a global level, how we think about places as important is going to change. And, you know, whether it's London becomes a important European city, but no longer a global center, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I expect Washington, Washington, the United States will remain economically successful and effective, will remain uh We'll have a great education system and a good economy. But all of those are based on choices that we make. We could become an inward, insular country that feels that it is in a terminal decline. And we could be Spain of 1840 instead of the United States of 1960. Um, I don't expect it. But I also think that the, the institutions we have will not be the same by 2075, much less 2100, as we have today. Right? The, Tech companies, internet, the, the the way in which information moves and and society can order itself will be so fundamentally different that we will have to find new ways to um, build the confidence that rules and systems allow without stifling the innovation and creativity that is so essential to all the other parts of of our life today. Yeah, one thing, uh, I mean, these are exciting uh, thoughts. One, one thing that really strikes me is that the organizational patterns, right, are likely to be quite different. So, for example, your seventh uh, revolution here, uh, governance, imagine a future where truly what the tech sector thinks that's going to happen, right? <laughs> that the tech companies themselves will be more powerful than countries, and perhaps not just four or five of them, but perhaps a hundred of them are more powerful than countries. Let's say that that were to happen. Presumably, then uh, companies would have developed governance structures of their own with some degree of legitimacy, because clearly, well, clearly, I say, uh, I would hope that they don't run around acting like the companies run around today, 
you know, with like some boards and some nice uh, corporate reports. But if they truly, if there truly is a hundred of, of them that are more powerful than some of the bigger countries, uh, I mean, first of all, w- w- do you agree with me that that's it's a possibility? Um, I think it's a possibility. I mean, you're you're painting a picture that to me sounds similar to Snow Crash, right? Where uh, major corporations kind of own fiefdoms and operate, and and I think that has been a longstanding potential. And and to me, the real question there isn't can companies get there. I think I think history has shown us from the Dutch East India Company to many others, companies try that. Um, when there's profit involved, because that's a company's job is to seek profit. The question in my mind is actually, does the nation state come back? Where I think for 30 or 40 years, nation states have felt that the world is stable and things are calm. And so the need for state power has been declining. Mm -hmm. Um, If the world really is unsettled, if geopolitics is, is shifting in dynamic, if geoeconomics is an area of competition and struggle. Companies will need the power of the state to fight back against other powerful states, and will have to kind of renegotiate what that organizational uh, symbiosis is. Um, and so, I think the, the question is: Do does the nation state continue to cede power to companies, or does it start pulling it back? Um, Either one is really possible, and I think right. the implications are are going to be big either way. Yeah, I agree, and and for sure, I mean, whether the scenario I painted now or your scenario, nation states, uh, you know, comes back. I mean, either way, w- one would assume that there would have to be some sort of governance principles operating, whether they are run by centralized institutions, decentralized institutions, public private, you know, mm-hmm. partnerships, or otherwise. There has to be some amount of governance, either distributed through the system in you know standards and and, and agreements and things, or or in like pure, pure pure raw power. These are fascinating, fascinating times, John. I uh, almost envy your job now. You you get to think about these things and and share them with uh, decision makers in in Washington, but also beyond. I'm hoping. Absolutely, and and I envy you your job. You get to continually engage with people who are thinking at the cutting edge of a range of different fields and that is a fascinating spot to be thanks for for letting me be part of the conversation oh for sure this is uh, super interesting thank you so much and i hope i can have you back when uh, you know when there's major uh, futuristic news and we can uh, we can chat about it like we were uh, you know seven and watching the news i look forward to it okay great you have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist scholar and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org/store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.